Thank you, Abby and Eric and the worship team. Welcome, everyone. My name is Jonathan Alasco. I'm the Associate Director of Missions and Outreach here at Bethany, and I'm grateful to be having another opportunity to share with you all again. I'm also looking forward to soon having at least some limited in-person gatherings here uh, on Sundays. I'm normally pretty introverted, and I'm very content to be by myself, but Sundays were my extrovert days. It was a work day for me. I was here at all four services, a lot of human interaction in one day, but I, I loved it, and I've missed it. And so looking forward to hopefully seeing some of you soon. Because as we know, for over a year now, we've been limiting our physical uh, interactions and contact with one another to protect our community. But for many of us, this distance has been costly, painful, and even overwhelming at times. Um, but now it feels like we're kind of on the home stretch of, of all this social distancing. We're still taking precautions, but for many of us, it's becoming safer to physically connect and reconnect with one another. But even though as a society, we're starting to move closer to one another, it can still feel like we're just as distant as ever. The ache of loneliness, exclusion, and relational brokenness still feels so real and painful. It seems that our problem of distance goes much deeper than the absence of physical proximity. Our problem of distance cries out, yes, for proximity, but even more loudly, it cries out for loving, embodied presence, a presence that heals the wounds caused by our practices of distance. So as we explore our text today, we will first look at the dangers of distance for our relationships, for our faith. Then we will discover and remember how the teachings and ministry of Jesus delivers us from those dangers. And finally, we will be invited to become a community of God's loving presence. In short, we're going to be looking at three main themes, distance, deliverance, and presence. And before we take a closer look at our uh, text for the day, I'll ask uh, you to pray with me. God, we thank you that you continue to reveal yourself through your word, through your scripture, uh, may we remember that the, the challenge and the hope that James offered his community back then is the same one that you offer us today. So as we listen, maybe be receptive in such a way that we not only do what you taught us to do, but we become the people you call us to be. So it's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So James was writing to a community that was struggling with the dangers of distance. He's writing to Christians who are physically distant from one another as they are scattered across the Roman Empire. But he's also writing to Christians who are socially distant from one another. And, and by socially distant, I mean the behaviors that exclude one social group in favor of another. Because the early church was made up of mostly of poor people. And, and this made them vulnerable to the oppression by the rich. James writes in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? But even within this poor community, there emerged social divisions between those at the bottom who were the poorest of the poor and those who, who had jobs but were still economically vulnerable. And, and finally, between those who uh, weren't quite rich, but they lived comfortably. And unfortunately, the, the social distancing that they experienced from those outside their community was now infecting their behavior within it. As Abby read to us um, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, James writes, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, 
but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So it was bad enough that the rich were oppressing the Christian community and were blaspheming the name of Jesus. But even worse was that the very community that professed Jesus as Lord was now also blaspheming his name by favoring the rich and showing prejudice against the poor. Because James knew that the Jesus they followed wasn't socially distant from the poor. Rather, he identified with them and chose them to be first in his kingdom. So favoritism, therefore, not only harms our social relationships, but also harms their faith in Jesus. Because it seems like there was another distance facing this community, a distance between their claims of faith and their embodiment of that faith. In James 1.22, he says, but be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. And later in chapter 2, uh, 14 and 17, he says, what good is it, brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith, but do not have works? Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. So in the same way that listening and doing belong together, faith and embodied works belong together in the life of Christian discipleship. But it seems that this community was struggling to hold all that together, and this was evident in how they were treating the poor. It seems like these Christians had deceived themselves into thinking that they could claim faith in Jesus while failing to treat the poor how God instructed them to. They have created a distance not only between themselves and the poor, but also their claims of faith and their embodiment of that faith. And so the consequences are broken relationships and dead faith. Broken relationships and dead faith. I I think it'd be fair to say that Christians all over the world, including here at Bethany Community Church, are struggling with those very same challenges. Let's consider uh, broken relationships, especially with those who are materially poor. So James called out Christians who were showing favoritism to the rich and prejudice toward the poor. But I think the bigger issue for most of us is not so much that we display these obvious acts of favoritism at the expense of the poor. But I think the problem more is that we don't really know the poor. I think, to be honest, most of us would would struggle to, to name one or more materially poor people that we knew personally. We are literally socially distant from the poor in our community. And the danger of distance is not so much the distance in and of itself, but rather how that distance creates lies about who we are and how those lies lead to broken relationships. Gregory Boyle, he's the founder and executive director of Homeboy Industries, which is one of the largest gang rehabilitation uh, programs in the world. And in this book, Tattoos on the Heart, he writes this. All throughout scripture and history, the principal suffering of the poor is not that they can't pay their rent on time, or that they are $3 short of a package of Pampers. As Jesus scholar Marcus Borg points out, the principal suffering of the poor is shame and disgrace. It is a toxic shame, a global sense of failure of the whole self. A couple of years ago, a woman who, um, her name was Bree, she showed up to our Green Lake campus and she was hoping to speak to someone on staff who was willing to hear her out and help her. And so I was available, I was on campus, and I agreed to meet her in our community life center just next door. And we, we set up a table and, and some chairs, and we start chatting. And she tells me, she tells me her name is Bree, and that she had been living on the streets for some time, was addicted to heroin, but was uh, wanting to get clean. And so I hear this, I'm you know, glad to hear she's trying to seek a better life, but to be honest, I didn't feel very equipped to, to help her that much besides offer some uh, contact information about some drug rehab programs I knew about. So I share that information, but, and we keep talking. She tells me more about her life and her past. 
I tell her about my work at this church, and, and she shares that when she was younger, she wanted to become a youth pastor. But a series of, of tragic events changed the trajectory of her life. She was driving, and she got in a car accident that led to the, the death of the passengers in her car. She ended up in jail, and then when she got out, she had trouble finding employment and community, and eventually ended up homeless and addicted to drugs. And so as I'm listening to her, I'm struck by the tragedy of her life experience, but also by the strength and her resilience. Honestly, it was amazing that she was still alive and fighting to live a better life. And so we start talking about church and about God. And at one point I ask her, when you think about God and you imagine him looking at you, what do you think he would say to you? What, how do you think he sees you? She gets pretty quiet. She looks pretty sad. And she says, I don't know. He's probably mad at me. He's probably disappointed. And when I hear this, like my heart breaks. In my head, I'm yelling, no, no, he doesn't. That's not true. But at the same time, based on what, all that she had shared, I could understand why she felt that way. I'll return to this story later, but for now, I want us to see how Bethany or how Bree's story reveals to us the danger of distance. So she had suffered from social marginalization and exclusion. And I think this is partly why she internalized the profound shame and disgrace that the poor often carry with them when they believe the lie that God only sees them in light of the worst thing they've ever done. But can we really blame them for thinking and feeling this way when our society neglects and is indifferent to their suffering? How would you think about yourself if those around you treated you as if you were either invisible or just a burden on society? How would you think about God and how he sees you? Our distance from one another undermines our ability to receive God's truth about who we are and how we should relate with one another. And this is not only harmful to our social relationships, our relationships with the poor, because how we treat one another, especially the poor, is ultimately a reflection about what we believe about God. Our broken relationships with the poor compromises our, our witness to our faith in Jesus, who wants us to be a community that, that looks after the orphan, the widow, that cares uh, for the poor and the oppressed. But we can never be this kind of faithful, Jesus-shaped community as long as we continue to maintain our social distance from those on the margins of society. And what about dead faith? Honestly, that's a scary thing to think about. The question, have you, uh, is my faith dead, can be quite intimidating. James challenges us to ask ourselves, am I someone who only listens to God's word but doesn't really do what it says? Am I lying to myself by thinking that I can claim faith in Jesus but have few deeds to back it up? James gives us a challenging word to receive about faith, and I think it's a challenge we need to take seriously and reflect upon honestly. When I was a little kid, I, I loved watching movies. and uh, We didn't have a, a cable, but we watched movies. And so uh, I would watch all the movies we had in our house, especially all the kid movies. But eventually at one point, I felt like I had watched it all. And so I was looking for anything that could entertain me. So I was browsing through all the, the video cassettes we had, and I found this old workout video. I'm like, this, this will do. So in preparation, I go uh, to my kitchen, and I pour myself some milk and uh, warm it up in the microwave. And then I go over to the guest room to watch my movie. I, I begin it. I lay comfortably on the bed. I start sipping my milk. And, and for the next hour, I don't do a single exercise. I just sip my milk. I watch these folks burn calories as I'm literally gaining calories with each sip, listening to the instructor telling me what a great job I'm doing. And I'm just nodding my head. Yes, thank you. I am. And so this 
video didn't do much to, to help my physical health, but it did le- leave me feeling encouraged and quite affirmed. And I think this image of little me watching the workout video, laying on my bed, drinking my milk, not doing the workout at all, can be an illustration of how sometimes we view faith. We'll watch and listen to sermons on Sundays and even during the week on podcasts. We'll read the latest book on spiritual formation and, and how Christians should respond to racial injustice. We consume all that there is to consume about how to live faithfully as Christians. But too often, at the end of the day, there's little transformation to show for it. And I confess, I'm guilty of this too. For example, I am way more at home reading a book on the theology of Christian community than actually pursuing it in my life. Because when I'm reading about it alone in my room, it it looks beautiful. And I'm like, yes, that's what we should be living like. But in practice, it requires investment, time, vulnerability, getting out of my room. and, And reading books is just so much easier. But when what we learn doesn't translate into how we lived, then our learning can actually undermine our faith and serve as a cover for a shallow commitment to following Jesus. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if we can quote the trendiest Christian authors or know all the the lyrics to the most popular worship songs, or if we're really good at biblical analysis and theological reflection, if the expression of our faith doesn't look like the life of Jesus, then it's useless. And if the expression of our faith does nothing to help the materially poor, then it's dead. So as our church community begins to move into closer proximity, as we begin to regather, I want to ask ourselves, who are we leaving out? Will our regathering reflect the the kingdom or the values of the kingdom or those of the rest of the world? Are we just going to return to our old habits of social distancing from the poor and the marginalized? Or will we choose to be a community that embodies a different way of living? I think part of the problem is that we've reduced faith in Jesus to an inward emotional experience and intellectual affirmation instead of seeing it as an outward embodiment of our allegiance to Jesus, the king of creation. But before we can get there, we need to confess, lament, and repent for how our cheap faith, our dead faith, has harmed our relationships with the poor, with ourselves, and with God. Moving forward will require humility and honest reflection. But more importantly, it will require receiving God's gracious love for us and sharing it with the rest of the world. Because God is not content to to leave us where we're at, but he's always calling, always inviting us back to himself and who we truly are in him. So now let's see what James has to say about how God wants to deliver us from our broken relationships and dead faith. So after condemning favoritism, James writes in chapter 2, verse 8, If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. So this command to love our neighbor as yourself is familiar to most Christians. But is deliverance from our broken relationships and dead faith really as simple as loving our neighbor? Let's first consider what Jesus meant by love. There are a variety of ways that Christians have tried to sum up what love is and what it does. Some have stressed love as sacrifice or love as mutual regard. And I agree, love does and and is both those things, but I think love as deliverance best captures uh, Jesus and his love. So when we look on his teachings and his embodiment of love, we see that love sees with compassion and enters into the situations of people caught up in captivity. We see that Jesus in his incarnation, he entered into our situations of captivity, experienced life and suffering and on the cross became vulnerable to our rejection of him. 
On the cross, he revealed the depth of our sin, but also the depth of God's love. We also see that love does deeds of deliverance. Jesus didn't just talk about deliverance. He, he practiced it through his healings, his miracles, and ultimately through his crucifixion. Love also invites into community. Through his death, Jesus delivered us into community with himself and even with a new people from all different backgrounds who now can be reconciled with one another. And finally, love confronts those who exclude. And we see this when Jesus confronts sin and those who try to exclude the poor, the children, the sick, the foreigner, the poor, and the unclean from entering his kingdom. I want to go back to my conversation with Bree. She, she had just told me, that she believed God just saw her with anger and disappointment. And so in that moment, I feel an immense pressure to, to say the right thing in the right way. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that? You're talking to someone, they say something quite heavy and you're not sure how to respond, but you wanna be helpful. And so in that moment, I just make a quick silent prayer to God and I'm like, God, please help me say the right thing right now. So I ask Bree, have you ever heard of the story of the prodigal son? And she says she's not sure. So I tell her that Jesus told a story where there was a man, he had two sons. And the younger son asked his father for his share of the inheritance, which at that time was incredibly disrespectful to ask of your father uh, while he was still alive. But the father gives his son his share of the inheritance anyway. And the son goes away and he wastes it all. And eventually the son's life gets so bad that he decides he's gonna return to his father, confess his sin, recognize he's not worthy of being called a son anymore, but hope that at least he'll be accepted as a servant. So he, he goes home and even at a long distance, the father uh, sees him and the Bible says was filled with compassion. And so the father runs to him and embraces him and the son is already giving him his, his prepared speech. He's saying, hey, I've sinned before you and I am not worthy of being called your son. But before he even has a chance to, to ask for a job back as a servant, his dad's already giving orders and preparing a great celebration for the return of his son. And when his older son complains about the celebration, the father challenges him to welcome him back as family. And so when I reflect back on that moment, I, I realize that I chose that story, not just because I thought that it would be helpful for Bree but because it is the story that I remember when I too feel like God only sees me with anger and disappointment and need to be reminded about God's delivering love. And it's also a story for all of us because we too need to be reminded of this love. The father in that story saw his son with compassion, rescued him from his sin, sin and rebellion, invites him back into community and loving relationship and confronts his older brother's exclusion. This is the kind of delivering love that Jesus demonstrated for us and that we need to remember and live out among our poor neighbors. And because Jesus loved us this way, we as his disciples can do the same for others. Jesus sent us his spirit, his empowering, loving presence to dwell within everyone who confesses him as Lord and King so that we can love as he does. Because loving our neighbor is not about mustering up the effort to become nice people who do really nice things to people who need it. It's about recognizing that in Jesus, the king of creation, a new reality of delivering love has been launched into the world. And as citizens of this kingdom, we are invited to live out this new citizenship by receiving God's delivering love and extending it out to the rest of the world. We are to practice a love that is not only proximate to our neighbors, 
but a love that confronts their exclusion, welcomes them into community, seeks their deliverance, and is empowered by God's spirit, his loving presence. This is how we are delivered from our broken relationships and dead faith. So we began today by looking at the dangers of distance. Then we were reminded of God's delivering love. And now we're invited to be a community of God's loving presence. Because God is not just proximate with us, he is present. And the distinction is important. I think we all know what it's like to be in proximity with people in our homes, our workplaces, and sometimes even our churches. And yet still feel lonely, still feel unloved. We also know what it's like to be with someone who is fully present within us, with us, and we feel their love. So what does practicing this kind of presence actually accomplish? And what does it look like? When we are confronted by the magnitudes of the, the issues facing our society, our, our homeless crisis, uh, our community violence, environmental degradation, mass incarceration, forced migration, loving presence can seem like a very inadequate response. You might say to yourself, what we really need is organizing, advocacy, political mobilization, policy change. And I hear that. I agree. We need all those things to pursue a more just and peaceful society. I think we are sometimes too quick to dismiss the, power, the transformative power of Christ-like loving presence. Let's remember that presence is how God began his rescue mission for creation. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Through Jesus' incarnation, the word becoming flesh, God chose to stand and be present with us. So we participate in God's delivering work by standing and being a community of presence. Gregory Boyle, who I referenced earlier, he also writes, if we choose to stand in the right place, God through us creates a community of resistance without our even realizing it. Our locating ourselves with those who have been endlessly excluded becomes an act of visible protest. For no amount of our screaming at the people in charge to change things can, can change them. Only when we see a community that where the outcast is valued and appreciated will we abandon the values that seek to exclude. A few years ago, when I first started work, working at Bethany, I go over to visit the, the Orcommas not too far away from here. And uh, we've been highlighting them recently with their Common Compassion Initiative and I start talking with some of the guests outside just to hear more about their stories. And I meet a guy named Andy. And he tells me that the Aurora Commons literally saved his life. And so I asked more about um, what he meant by that. And he told me about the many challenges that come with living unhoused. And I remember in particular his comments on the psychological toll of homelessness. He's, he told me, you think and feel as if you're in a different world and not really part of society. And so as I listened to Andy's story and his experience with the commons, I noticed a common theme, humanity and the need for hope. For him, the commons was a space where he could feel like a human again, a place that reminded him that there is something more to live for, and that gave him hope. So this is the power of embodied presence. It's not about revolutionizing the world through our own strength and intelligence, but rather offering people a glimpse of the new hope and humanity that we know is true because Jesus rose from the dead and is making all things new. So when we feel overwhelmed by all the problems in our personal life, our local community, around the world, let's learn to pause, humbly recognize our weaknesses and limitations, and commit to offering the world the only thing that it really needs, the presence of Jesus working in and through us as his people. 
So the commons has a volunteer role called Chaplains of Presence. And the idea is, as a volunteer, you are simply present in the space among the guests. And I think the name Chaplain of Presence is a great way to describe the calling of every Christian. What if we saw ourselves as Chaplains of Presence in every space we inhabited? What practices would we need to do that? First, to be effective Chaplains of Presence, we need to become people who are filled with the loving presence of God. And this is why Pastor Richard and all of us um, uh, at the Bethany staff were so insistent on the value of developing a rule of life so that we are intentional about being present with God in our daily life. There are a lot of practices that can help us do that. For, but for today, I just want to highlight the importance of silence and solitude. As Henry Nouwen said, we do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not spend some time to be with God and listen to him. So for the past few weeks, I have been working to prepare this sermon, and by Wednesday of last week, I was feeling all right, which was coming together, but one night, I was laid up um, trying to do my reading for, for my seminary homework, and I found myself just reading the same page over and over and over again, and having no idea what I was really reading. Because in the back of my mind, I was wrestling with this sermon. How do I say the right words in the right way and, and hopefully get the right response? But honestly, I was also wrestling with my insecurities about my preaching abilities and what people would think about me and my sermon as if the sermon was supposed to be about me and not about God. Eventually, after spending way too much time just looking at the same page, I realized it's not working. And so I closed the book. I knew something was off, not just in my mind, but in my spirit. So I started pacing in my room, which is what I often do when something's going on. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I realized that I had been spending so many hours thinking about and writing about the dangers of distance and the importance of presence that I didn't realize in the very process, I was struggling with those same challenges. I had deceived myself into thinking that spending time preparing a sermon about God's presence was more important than actually spending time in God's presence. Once again, I was watching the workout video, drinking my milk, but not doing any of the exercises. This is why silence and solitude is so important for our work as chaplains of presence. Because without this practice, we are vulnerable to the lies that distort our priorities and identities. Because we cannot be fully present with our neighbors if we do not re regularly experience God's presence within us. So make time in your day and weeks to, to practice silence and solitude. It may take different forms for each one of us, uh, a long evening walk for some, an early morning prayer for others. But the point is silence the noise around you, within you, and allow yourself to regularly spend time and delight in God's presence. Ideally, our presence with God equips us to be present with one another, but it needs to be intentionally pursued and has its own unique practices. For today, I just want to emphasize two very briefly, table fellowship and service. Table fellowship or, or just eating together, this can be a spiritual practice. And when, when the church does it among the socially vulnerable, it is a powerful way of how we witness God's love to them. So whether it's showing up to our community meal here at Bethany and sharing a meal with one of our guests or striking up a conversation with an unhoused person and inviting them to get lunch or dinner, table fellowship is a simple yet meaningful practice for learning how to become chaplains of presence among the vulnerable in our community. And finally, service. Choose a community, a people group that you have a particular concern for, you believe suffers from exclusion and social distancing. Find an organization that works alongside them and commit to serving with them in some way, whatever way you can. There are a lot of great organizations out there in the community, but may I suggest serving with our local partner, YouthWise Mentoring? 
I think mentoring is a great way to not just be present with a young person, but also for us as a church to be present in our community, to support our local schools, uh, their students and the families. Right now uh, at Bethany, we only have uh, two mentors and I'm one of them. So we would love to expand our team. So if youth mentoring is something that appeals to you, you feel like God is inviting you or just uh, challenging you about, we'd love to uh, share you, tell you more about that. So please reach out to us and, and we'll help you with that. But whatever service you decide to do, do it consistently and with your whole self, trusting that through your commitment, God's loving presence and your faith in him will be made visible. So as we close today, I want to recognize that all of us in some way have been harmed by distance especially over the past year. Whether it's interpersonal distance between a friend or a family member, a social distance between yourself and and community, or a spiritual distance between yourself and God, it's all painful, it's all hard. And yet in the midst of our pain and distance, our God has chosen to deliver us from the brokenness of our relationships and our faith. Jesus comes to earth. He came to earth, lived, died, rose again. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father, as king of creation, and sent us his Holy Spirit. Jesus has launched a new reality in a new community and invited us to be a part of it. So let's live according to God's spirit, serving the world as chaplains of presence as we receive God's delivering love and reflect it back out into a world. In a world wounded by the pain of distance, let's be a community who is healed and heals by loving presence. Would you pray with me? God, we confess that we have not only been harmed by distance, but we are also complicit in it. Forgive us for the ways that we have rejected your call to faithfully be present with one another. May we remember that your, your deliverance, your story, the ways that not only have you been at work in our lives in the past, but here you are right now. So help us to hold together our faith in an integral way, holding together our listening and our doing and our learning and our practicing so that we as a church, especially Bethany Community Church, can reflect your loving presence into the world. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.